celebrate that you sent your son to be the way, the truth, and the life, to be the only route, the only path to return to your gracious arms, to rescue us from our sin, to show us our error, and to begin to restore the image of you that was planted on us at our creation. May we faithfully hear your true word and respond. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You guys can be seated. And does anybody see, this is my bad. Uh, Can you hand me the black Bible there? That's mine from like, I don't know why I left it there, but there's an open seat right in the middle of that row right there. What if, you, what if your life was judged uh, on just one principle, one, one basic commitment, all your uh, words and deeds and thoughts were, were put on a scale, weighed out, and measured to see if they, they came up lacking? What if everything hung on that one weigh-in? All their considerations are set aside, just, just one thing. You know, and, and there was this, this giant weight on one side, and it was an impossibly large weight, so that it just, you know, those balances work, and they, they, you put weight on both sides, and if they level out, you're good. And this weight is just impossibly heavy, so you're not going to push it all the way down on this side, but your best bet is you can get it to balance. Just one criteria. We're not going to put every weight on there. We're not going to look at every possible weight that we could put on that scale, but we just used one. What if we weighed everything against one metric, the truth. We, we like to think there's shades of the truth, and, and I never realized how true that was uh, until I sold cars for a year. Um, I, I was talking with, uh, with Sean uh, about this this past week, and I think that's why it was on my, my brain, that the truth is a tricky thing in the car business, and I don't want to impugn all car dealers. Um, I don't even want to impugn the, the one I worked at necessarily because they, they were doing what they had to do. Um, and I'm not impugning anyone in here who's in sales. So I know a few of you all are in sales. It's a tough business. I, I don't envy you. But it was very difficult for me because there are shades of truth in, in the car business. And I would assume all sales. There, was, there wasn't just honesty and, and dishonesty. And, and I will tell you, though, the truth was a precious and, and rare commodity. I think people rarely lied just for the sake of lying. That, that didn't happen too much. But here's the thing. You have to understand that buying a new car is a bad idea. All right? it's, it's not a wise investment. If you want to do it and you have the money to do it, get by all means, do it. But like, it's honestly not a wise investment, right? Because you, you buy the car, you drive it off the lot, and it's worth like 20% less than what you paid for already. So you cannot pay it back with money fast enough to reach the depreciation. So it's generally not a, a good investment. And so you'd see people come in every day, and, and they, it wasn't like they were coming in with just tons of money and great credit and just you know doing a a wise decision, or at least a foolish decision based on good metrics. They were just making a bad decision out of bad circumstances. 
but you don't get paid unless they buy a car. This was 2008, so the credit crunch was happening. We were starting to move into the recession, and everybody who came in had bad credit, and everybody wanted to buy too much car at, at, at too much price point, and they wanted to trade in their own vehicle that they still owed money on. And so almost everyone who came in was making a terrible life decision. I mean, not, not just a little bad. I mean, there, I saw some horrible things, and yet at the same time, the pressure was there, you've got to close the deal. And, and so, you know, that they're, what the dealership wants and what the customer wants are, are different things. And that, that leads to bad places sometimes. And so you could say that there were different levels of truth. There was, there was flat out lying. It happened once in a while. I saw it while I was there. Um, I, I like to think I steered away from that. Um, but I saw it. That was there. So on one hand there. On the other hand, there's the white lies. You know, we all know the white lies, the lies that we say, these don't matter. Like maybe a customer comes in and, and they've got a Green Bay Packers jacket on. And so you pick up on that and you just kind of feign interest in the Packers to develop rapport with them. You know, and oh, yeah, 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 Aaron's having a good year, right? Yeah, sure. Rogers has been fantastic. You know, you don't care. You know, so there's 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 that level. There's that level of it. But then it, it there's there's sort of gradations in between. There's uh, what I would call subjective lying. There were there were lies we'd tell, like like my uh, my boss would say. Uh, I want you to go tell the customer that the best way to buy a car is, is such and such and, and show them these numbers and then when they freak out the numbers, they can, uh, you can kind of adjust them and massage them to go a little bit different direction. Like, who says that's the best way to buy a car? No one says that's the best way. To, I'm sure someone somewhere says that's the best way to buy the car, but do I believe that? Do he, does he believe that? Like, you know, it's just something he wants me to tell the customer to, right, you know, to, to, to move them the direction that we want them to move. So I guess it could be true for someone. It's kind of a subjective lie. And there was all kinds of variation. I had no idea how many different shades of the truth there could possibly be until I sold cars. And it'd make me sick sometimes. And, and those of you who are in sales in this room, I don't know how you guys do it. Uh, God bless you. Um, and I do think part of it was the environment I was in. Part of it was the, the metrics at the time. It was the, how bad the, the economy was and how much pressure we were under to make sales. Part of it was just the culture of the company I worked for. But ultimately, customers want to feel good about the purchase. And, and this was the really tricky part. Not so much do they want it to make sense. They wanted to feel good about what they were doing, even if it was stupid. And so they were going to buy a car from whoever made them feel good about their stupidity. And that was really, as a pastor, who like, because I was still, I was like by vocation at the time, like I want the best for people. And, you know, and my job is sometimes to make them feel good about doing something bad for them. But it's their decision, right? So, I don't know. It was, it was tough. I think that we tolerate falsehood too well in our culture. It's the coin of the realm. We want people to say nice things, even if those things aren't true. Um, we slip in little half-truths, we slip in white lies, and we massage the truth just to make our lives go more smoothly. To get around that one coworker, uh, to calm down that one person who's absolutely irate, 
And I think if we did an honest assessment of how many times we were less than fully honest in a day or in a week, we would be absolutely astonished at how much we let it slip by. But the underlying point that James was making in in chapter 5, verse 12, is that Christians must have a radical, even fanatical, devotion to the truth. Christians must have a radical devotion to the truth. And James gets at that point by giving us a a negative command, a a positive command, and and a warning. And so we're going to break it down that way and and understand what we're called to be in in Jesus Christ. So uh, first, a negative command right at the uh, beginning of verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Now, in saying above all, most scholars don't think James intends this to be the most important part of the letter. This is not, he's not saying uh, not swearing is, is more important than uh, the law of love your neighbor as yourself, for instance, uh, from earlier in the letter. Um, it's a rhetorical device. It, it's probably signaling the end of the letter, and, it, and we are moving that direction. And it also is probably... De- put there because he's, he's making a short point. He doesn't elaborate on it much. He's not drawing out this point, but he doesn't want us to miss it. So it's sort of a, a, an ancient highlighter. He's put this in, in yellow markers so that we don't miss this point as we read quickly through the letter. And James has also moved back to his familiar address, brothers, my brothers. So, so we know he has his fellow Christians in mind, and what he says, he comes from a come from a place of like-minded commitment to the family of faith. We're in this together. We are, he says, peers. He says, I might be the older brother, but we're brothers, we're sisters. But then James gets to it with a a simple command. He says, do not swear. And and in case he's not clear, he, he tells the readers there is no acceptable oath formula. Don't swear by heaven, don't swear by earth, don't swear by anything else, including, but but not stated, God, uh, your mother's grave, or, and please don't, the sun and the moon and the skies. Um, look, depending on your leanings, John Michael Montgomery and All for One clearly didn't read James. Because instead of singing, I swear by the sun and the moon and the skies, I'll be there. They should have sung, if the Lord in his goodness permits me to live, I'll be there. Not only are they swearing, but they swear they'll, they'll be there when they should just say, Lord willing, I'll be there. Now, now, James' point here is not original. Like much of this letter, he is borrowing from his master, Jesus Christ. But here, James almost verbatim, almost word for word, quotes his Lord. Uh, in part of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, with his, his characteristic authority and clarity, says, Uh, Starting verse 34, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now at this point, it's worth stating that by swearing, 
Jesus and James do not mean don't use four-letter words or, or that sort of idea. The Bible does talk about coarse, vulgar language in a few places, um, and there are some limitations that the Bible puts in a place about what is acceptable for Christians, um, but those exact limitations aren't spelled out, and that's a totally different subject. That's a different sermon. Um, in James, we're talking about oaths. And an oath is, we could say, a verbal or a written commitment, a pledge of the truthfulness of your words, or the surety that you will take action. An oath is a verbal or written commitment as to the truthfulness of your words or the surety that you will perform some action. And traditionally, an oath invokes a deity, either directly or indirectly, as Jesus' words indicate, swearing by heaven was a way to indirectly refer to God. Just like we might say, the White House said today, when what we would mean more literally would be Sean Spicer said or Donald Trump said. Houses don't talk, but we use the location to refer to the, the people in it. When such an oath is taken, you are calling upon that deity to bear witness to your truthfulness and and likely you're implicitly suggesting that misfortune would come upon you if you didn't follow through. Uh, in the Old Testament, a common oath formula was, may the Lord do to me and worse if... What I say to you is not true. May the Lord do to me and worse if... I don't follow through on this commitment. And I never specified what the worse is or the thing, but the implication was clear. Uh, something along the lines of... May he kill me. And so Jesus and James are prohibiting oaths. Are they prohibiting every single possible type of oath? Is he uh, prohibiting uh, an oath that you might take in a court of law, in a deposition, in legal documents? How far do we take this? Well, a lot of scholars, uh, and I'm inclined to agree, think that this is a, mostly focused on general prohibitions against the sort of oaths that come up in day-to-day -day affairs. That is, Jesus and, and consequently James are thinking about our interpersonal relationships. They're thinking about um, our typical everyday dealings. After all, they point out that God takes oaths in the Bible and the Old Testament doesn't absolutely forbid them. And in fact, in a few legal contexts, oaths were commanded in the Old Testament. But, but some caveats here before we suggest that this doesn't apply more broadly. First, even if God takes oaths in the Bible, it's a little different. It's a little different for an all-powerful, all-true, all-knowing God to swear by himself. He can swear by himself as much as he wants because that's, that's not really like a human oath, is it? Because we swear by something that we perceive to be greater than ourselves. A deity or an ancestor or a sacred object like a Bible. And supposedly that, that guarantees our truthfulness. God is true himself, and so God taking an oath by himself is more a demonstration of his utterly unchangeable nature than it is uh, uh, him giving extra promise to the truth of what he's saying. And so the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 6, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. 
when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his promise, of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, which is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast in the hope set before us. And then as for those human oaths in the Old Testament, not to oversimplify, but for the most part, from a teaching perspective, the Old Testament views oaths as something we are obligated to fulfill. So if you swear an oath, you better come through on it. But from a practical standpoint, the Old Testament is replete with examples of foolish oaths, rash oaths that people took that caused great distress. And, and I think at the very least, the Old Testament leaves us a legacy that suggests we should be very careful with our oaths and our words, at the very least. And Jesus comes in the midst of this, and as he often does, he takes the law of God, and on one hand he fulfills it, and on the other hand he sets it on a higher plane. So let's return to this question of when an oath might be applicable in just a moment. And let's look at this higher plane that James wants to draw our attention to, which is in the form of a positive command, the next part of this verse. So James says, as, as we continue here uh, in verse 12, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. So right away we notice that James is not prohibiting Christians from making commitments. That's different. Just oaths. James and Jesus are simply advocating a very simple statement of commitment. There's been a few attempts over the years to get like there's, a, there's some deeper significance to what Jesus is saying or, or maybe what Jesus is saying is slightly different than what James is saying. And I think the reality is it's, it's just as simple as it sounds. Let your words line up with your heart. If you agree to, follow through. If you deny it, let it not come nigh. Uh, what James is saying is that the intent of your heart and the intent of your lips need to be in agreement. They need to match. Then why not swear? Well, it seems like for Jesus and his disciple, James, the Christian should be so absolutely committed to the truth that the necessity of swearing an oath is a farce. It's a joke. It would be silly. It would be pointless. Our integrity, your integrity, my integrity should be so high that an oath would be meaningless. After all, isn't an oath necessary only when our veracity, when our trustworthiness is in question? Isn't it human nature to offer rash oaths, sometimes well-meaning, sometimes not, in the, in the face of questions about one's character? Someone asks to borrow some money, and, and you're kind of like, I, I, I don't know. Uh, you're, you're thinking in the back of your head, it's unwise to loan so much money, and you, and you don't know if you're ever going to see it back. And your friend comes back, come on, man, I swear to God I will pay you back. Maybe it's in, in seriousness, maybe it's in, in desperation, 
as a ploy to convince you that they're trustworthy, but it doesn't change the fact that you don't trust the person's integrity or character quite enough to loan the money. And so we, we, we resort to those kind of statements sometimes when our character is in question. You see, the problem isn't the oath per se. The problem is the lack of integrity necessitated or that necessitates the oath. So, so Jesus, you see, is once again, he's placed the law on a high plane. It's not the external fulfillment of words that God cares about, at least not most. What God cares about more is the internal and radical commitment to the truth. And, and, the, and that's not entirely new revelation. Psalm uh, 51.6 reads, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Jesus says in John 14, 6, as I prayed earlier, I am the way and the truth and the life. Shouldn't the disciples of Jesus Christ be like their master? So then what do we say about those very serious cases? Let's get to some of those specific. What about a court of law? Surely, James, you can't be saying we never swear. Should an oath be forbidden even then? John Piper gives a, a good response to this uh, in his podcast a few years ago. He says, so very practically, if he was in this position... I would say something like this. Your Honor, my commitment to the truth and to the Lord of the truth, Jesus Christ, leads me to believe that it would dishonor both my commitment to the Lord and the Lord himself if I needed to put my hand on this sacred book to guarantee my truthfulness. I am totally committed to the truth and to the Lord of the truth. So I ask that I may be permitted to act without such an oath, but I do promise in reliance on the help of the Lord Jesus to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Is our character such that we need a Bible and a hand on it to pledge our absolute reliability? Do we have to um, ratchet up our language, ratchet up our words, and, and place them on a Bible, metaphorically, or on God, or your grandmother's grave? Or is our integrity, is our character so unimpunable that the thought of demanding an oath from you is absurd? Or the thought that you would need to go to an oath is absurd? And I think if we're honest we'd acknowledge that the American church has a credibility problem. I don't want to put too much on it. I think sometimes we overdo this stuff. And, and I don't want to denigrate the character of my brothers and sisters without warrant. But it is a problem. In a 2013 uh, Reader's Digest poll of the 100 most trusted Americans, the list is filled with celebrities and talk show hosts, and a few athletes. And unless you count Tim Tebow or maybe Tony Dungy, um, the only person who makes the list who is known foremost as a Christian is Billy Graham at 67. 
clearly it was uh, uh, celebrities, and, and, and that was you know, people who are well-known, but it, there's a lot of well-known Christians that I'm sure they asked people about. We can probably think of, uh, of 30 or 40 right off the top of our head, well-known Christians who would be strong enough, to be in, strong enough known to be in a survey like this, uh, and, and they didn't make the cut. And the only one that makes the cut, the only one who's well-known enough and looked at highly for their integrity has been out of the public spotlight for years and will turn 100 next year if the Lord sees fit. And I I know some fanatically anti-religious people who would claim Christians are just highly untrustworthy. But I think that the truth is most Americans see Christians as just ordinary people. That's not exactly an endorsement, but I think that's probably closer to the truth. I don't think people look at Christians generally and say we're untrustworthy or dishonest, but we apparently don't give the impression that we're particularly trustworthy and honest either. Too often, we Christians are not known for a radical commitment to the truth. I'm going to suggest three reasons why, and there's there's many. But let me suggest three that I think are relevant for us and in our context. First, uh, I think that one of the reasons why we are not known for a radical commitment to the truth is that we don't guard the gospel. We don't guard the gospel. Here's what I mean. Too often, we give the gospel in soundbite format. We, we simplify it down to pithy statements that we can put on a bumper sticker or that we can stick in a, uh, you know, a tweet. And we ask people to make generic commitments to God and Christ. But we don't actually teach them what it means to repent. What it means to have faith. In fact, we often don't really tell people what Jesus did for them or why it matters. So, so that there's no confusion, let me be clear, the gospel is the good news. It is the good news that even though we have rebelled against a good and glorious king, that's God, he saw fit to rescue us from ourselves. We deserve to die. We deserve to be punished eternally in hell. But God, in his great love, sent his son to take the form of man. He offered his life on the cross as a substitute for us, as an intoning sacrifice, so that all who repent and have faith might receive not their due death sentence, their deserved death sentence, but gracious eternal life, enjoying God forever. Repentance is agreeing with God about our sinfulness and turning our back on our sinful life. Faith is an enduring head and heart commitment to Jesus Christ, recognizing him as our trustworthy master who leads us well. We don't deserve any of this. It is God's good and gracious gift to all who would receive it. There is no other gospel. And so when we don't guard the gospel, we get false converts. We call people by the name Christian 
people who do not have the Holy Spirit. And so, of course, their lives are not holy. Of course, their lives do not evidence a radical commitment to the truth. And, of course, they're not particularly interested in following people who are. That's why a lot of our biggest-name Christians out there are charlatans and deceivers and false teachers. Second, and this is related, we do not guard church membership or we don't take membership seriously at all. And while we could do a whole series on church membership, maybe we'll do that at some point, um, membership is at least two important things. It's a declaration to the world about who belongs to Christ. The community of Christ comes alongside a man or woman and say, yes, we believe that this person has a credible profession of faith in the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And so, it's a testimony to a watching world. And it's also a testimony to those Christians who have not yet met the person. So, when we say... uh, we, we have a, are convinced that, that uh, Philip is a uh, man who prove, professes a true and enduring confession of faith in Jesus Christ. Then when, when someone new walks in the door or a, a Christian comes and visits our church from out of town um, and, and they see who the members are, they know that these are people that the church has come around and, and, and knows, not just by name, but by their faith commitment. And and so, that is, by the way, one reason why why non-attendance in churches is grounds for dismissal from a church. And I'm not talking about missing a Sunday here or there because you're sick, but if if you're regularly not present at the primary gathering of believers, how can the church stake a claim to the credibility of your profession of faith. If they're never around you, uh, if you're never in the company of believers, if you're never serving in the company of believers, if you're never fellowshipping in the company of believers on a regular basis, they really can't attest to your profession of faith anymore, can they? They, they don't know. And, and so, and that's, a, that's a bit of an aside, but um, it prevents them from making a credible uh, a claim stake on, on your profession of faith. Never mind the fact that the author of Hebrews gives the positive can, command, do not give up meeting with one another as some are in the habit of doing. Better words could not be spoken of the American church. Third, we do not guard our responsibility for discipleship. If Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, then we, all of us who are professed followers of Jesus Christ, should reflect his truthfulness. We say we want to live in community. It's on our window up there. But um, community, for community's sake, is meaningless. Community is valuable in the Christian sense Community is valuable because it's a context for discipleship. If community isn't built around sharpening each other and 
chiseling each other more and more into the mold of Jesus Christ, it is wasted community. It's not fellowship. Uh, D.A. Carson jokes that we have this, this habit in the church that if we have a, a cup of coffee um, with uh, our, our next-door neighbor, it's friendship. But if we have a cup of coffee with uh, the person sitting next to us at church, it's fellowship. But that's, that's not fellowship. Fellowship isn't just a social gathering. Fellowship is a shared partnership in what's at stake in the kingdom and for the sake of the gospel. It means sharpening one another to become more like our Lord and Savior. And so community that, that doesn't involve discipleship, that doesn't involve true fellowship, is just secular. It's just secular neighborliness with people who happen to profess Jesus. There's nothing particularly special about it. One-on-one, small gatherings, growth groups, Sunday morning, intentional meetings, accidental encounters, all of these things are, are grounds for discipleship. For pushing each other to reflect the Lord of the truth. But we Americans are weak at discipleship. And I think we're still too weak here at Gateway Downtown. We often think it's an acceptable way to live the Christian life. It is simply to make a profession of faith and occasionally hang out around Christians. It's not. Others think it's perfectly acceptable to join the church or at least regularly attend, but never let anyone speak into their lives. It's not either. That's not the Christian life. We must be intentionally, purposefully looking to sharpen one another. And we also must be humbly, intentionally looking to be sharpened. We must disciple and we must be discipled. We need both of those. So who are you intentionally building into for the good of the gospel, to the glory of God, into the image of Jesus Christ? Who's doing that for you? If you need help, I've got plenty of ideas. I've got a mental list of like, Man, I know that they need to get with somebody, and, and, and boy, it'd be great if they could talk to that person. I've got this mental list. Sometimes it comes out, you guys know, I, if you talk to so-and-so, talk to me. We'll figure it out together. But let's do this. The American church doesn't take discipleship seriously, and so it's no surprise that our lifestyles are not in accord with the radical commitment to the truth, and that that goes unchallenged. And that is to our shame. So, half-truths, white lies, massaging the truth, fibbing, defrauding, carefully coaching the truth with an intention to deceive, it's got to be out. All the different possible shades. And it's so hard sometimes because our culture is so pervasive. But brothers and sisters, the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. And we cannot make excuses for our sin. And let's be real for a second. When we are dishonest, particularly with an intention to deceive, that is sin. James gives us a warning in the end of verse 12. 
so that you may not fall under condemnation. The result of not following this prescription to avoid swearing oaths because of an underlying radical commitment to the truth, the result of this is that we will not fall under condemnation. It's a warning, to be sure. If our lives are not so marked by the truth, we risk falling into condemnation. Now, that's a strong word, but it is fitting. A more neutral term might be judgment, but the judgment in question here, as in many places, is it's a negative judgment. So a lack of commitment to truth will not end in our vindication, but our condemnation. That's a rather sobering analysis. But it is what the text says. God's people should be so characterized by a radical commitment to the truth and a commitment that has so little use for oaths that it can freely eschew them altogether. If, on the other hand, our character is of a different sort, it might be that the reason our character is of a different sort is that we are, in fact, not Christians. Otherwise, James' warning would be hollow. Those who serially struggle with truth and integrity are in danger of condemnation. If this is you, there's hope. Because even if you have lived as a phony Christian for years or, or for decades, repentance is still available to you. You're not beyond God's reach. New life in the Spirit is available to you. Repent and turn to Christ in the sincerity of your heart. And he will make your heart truly sincere. If you are in Christ, but you are struggling against the flesh, and we all have struggles, for one, lust is a great fight. For another, greed is a great fight. For another, integrity is a great fight, and so on. But if, if that's you, if you're struggling against the flesh, then I've got some good news for you. It may very well be that the struggle in you is the very evidence that you are in Christ. Now, don't take this too far, because many people try to kill many bad behaviors for a lot of different reasons. But in general, this is a good sign. You can't fight this battle alone. We are called to make sure our calling and election are sure. We're called to test ourselves to see if we're truly in the faith. But get with faithful brothers and sisters and allow them to speak into your life for the sake of your good and the sake of Christ's glory to help you move past your issues with integrity or lust or greed or, 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 whatever your most obvious vices are right now. You don't fight that battle alone. That's not how we're called to fight. So sisters and brothers, our mouths must match our conduct. Our tongues must must match our tendencies. We must demonstrate a radical commitment to the truth. There's no other option in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that too often we have not been truthful. We have not 
been honest. We have shaded the truth in many ways with the intention to deceive others, even those called by your name, even to our folly at times. We've attempted to deceive you. We should know better. Lord of truth, who is unchanging and immovable, the sure rock on which we can plan and establish our worship and lives. Moved by the spirit of truth to make our lives more like your son. We thank you for his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his sending of that spirit. That we might live new. Help us to put to death our old selves and our old ways and the patterns of sin that surround us and threaten to subdue us. May we stand in grace knowing that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.